right. Hey, everybody. We are back. This is the Years of Lead pod. I'm your host, Alexander Reed Ross. And I'm joined by Natasha Leonard for the third and concluding episode about the Nuclei Armati Proletari. We've gone over so much uh, by this point that um, it's pretty obvious that the NAP deserve kind of their own entire podcast series. But if I did kind of try to do justice to the organization and its many, many actions, activities, and intriguing characters, I would probably never... This wouldn't be a limited history podcast. This would be much, much more extensive, um, which is not really what I had plotted out uh, going into this. So just a three-parter on the nap. Uh, Sorry to everybody who's disappointed by that. Uh, At any rate, where we left off last time, we were talking about... Anna Maria Montini being shot dead in her apartment by Officer Tuzzolino. And we followed her husband, her widowed husband, Nicola Pelecchia and his buddy Antonio de Laurentiis, as they got arrested um, just as they were forging a new system of safe houses that were intended to prevent... Uh, the kinds of police killings that took the life of Nicola's uh, wife, Anna Maria Montini. So we've also talked about, you know, the, uh, the society of, of NAP, in a sense. Like, this was a really interesting group, partly because the members uh, were so interconnected. Brothers and sisters, so like... Uh, there's Anna Maria Montini and Luca Montini, who was killed on October 25th, 1974, with Sergio Romeo during the botched uh, robbery. There's also Pasquale and Antonio de Laurentiis, uh, who are brothers, obviously. And then there's the Abitangelo brothers. So, you know, Nap has a really interesting... Um, kind of social network they have they're very interconnected they're very close and they really really believe in one another so that's part of you know the emotional bonds that form amongst nap and it probably contributes to their effectiveness to an extent but also their relentlessness because anytime one of the brothers is impacted then the other is impacted very emotionally and the same thing goes with Anna Maria and Luca Montini, and then obviously Anna Maria and Nicola Pelecchia. So yeah, they're all kind of, they're in this familial type bond together. Unlike a lot of groups, I think this matters for them. They have like a love bond in their collective. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think that that's kind of also what brings this story kind of that tragic aspect to it, the, the rapid rise and decline here. So the killing of Ana Maria and subsequent incarceration of Pelecchia and De Laurentiis, it did hit Nap extraordinarily hard. But if there's one thing we know about this group, it's that they are extraordinarily resilient. So the group bounced back, and it bounced back harder than ever before. So a lot of their uh, activity was symbolic in the early days. They didn't think that they were crossing the line necessarily when they were doing things like 
burning people's cars or kidnapping people, doing office ransacking and bombings because there weren't too many injuries. They'd shot a couple of people in the legs, sure, but compared to the bloody onslaught against the representatives of the state and especially the justice system, which would follow, what Knapp had been doing was really kind of innocent kid stuff. Knapp was by now desperately firing in all directions in a manner that would claim more victims than ever. On October 4th, 1975, Knapp members hit the high industrialist club, the Bassini Ticino Society of Rome. But the police operation wasn't done yet either. Five days after the strike against the wealthy industrialists meeting ground, three more Knapp members were arrested. Pietro Sofia's brother Giuseppe, there's another couple of brothers, Aldo Mauro's cousin, a a philosophy student and son of an oil industry manager named Alberto Buonoconto, another family relation, and another man named Edmundo de Cortez. The three men and Antonio de Laurentiis were all found in possession of guns stolen from the armory that June. On October 11th, two days after the arrests of Sofia Buonoconto and de Cortez, Knapp members attacked a prison guard brig- brigadier named Cosimo Vernich in an ambush. The Knapp declared that Vernich, quote, often and willingly commands the team of thugs inside the prison of San Vittore. There are many executioners of this team, and it is the task of all revolutionaries to unmask them and where the conditions are favorable to strike at it. By the end of the year, the government had put together a reform package to address the problems in the prison system, and a number of jails erupted in protest to demand the immediate implementation of the reforms. But Knapp wanted more than the reforms that were offered. Their demands effectively stripped the prisons of all power over the prisoners, transforming penitentiaries into places of re-education. So far, 20 Knapp members had been arrested. 13 of their safe houses had been busted in Rome and Naples. But they had also racked up another disconsolate figure. Five of their members had been killed in action. Taras blew himself up on the roof of a mental institution. Vitaliano had died in the explosion at a safe house. Of course, Sergio Romeo and Luca Montini had been shot dead during a firefight at the savings bank the previous October. And Montini's sister, Ana Maria, had been killed by police in the very suspicious circumstances. But, (laughs) once again, NAP members come out guns blazing. (laughs) There we go. Haven't got rid of all the ammo yet, have we, though, Yeah, the the show must go on. Um, (laughs) Stiff upper lip. We only have a few more clips to go. Um... Yeah, so in, in January 1976, Knapp keeps it keeps it rolling uh, by ambushing ambushing a magistrate named Pietro Margariti and shooting him five times in the legs. And the next month, they jumped Ana Maria's killer, Officer Tuzzolino, in a nighttime ambush, seriously injuring him with wounds that left him paralyzed. And in March. Knapp reappeared in force with joint actions carried out together with the Red Brigades. The first of these actions took place 
on March the 2nd and involved the detonation of explosives around Carabinieri barracks in Pisa, Naples, Genova, Rome, Florence, and Roe. In their communique on this action, the Brigate Rosse and Nuclei Armati Proletari announced a new strategy comprising three main points. Quote, Class war and armed struggle deepen the crisis of the bourgeoisie, unify the workers' movement, defeat the paladins of compromise and of the national interest, with the national interest in scare quotes. The next action with the Brigate Rosse came the following month, and it recalled the kidnapping of Di Gennaro, who was the, the magistrate that was trying to... Uh, create more pro-police policies. So they bombed his offices at the Institute of Prevention and Punishment. Interestingly, with this organizational fusion, the NAP began to adopt the Red Brigade's rhetoric, calling Italy the government of multinational corporations. This, um, yeah, this kind of uh, temporary or kind of just action-based coalition, like surprising to people or like other with like some red brigade people like hmm, we're we really doing it with these nutters <laughs> yeah um that's a good question um so at this time in 1976 the brigate rose were quite a different organization than they had been in the early 70s a lot of that's because some of their co-founders had been arrested and they had also developed a new kind of uh what was called a rome column led by a dude named Valerio Marucci. And so, you know, with some of their founders in jail and this guy Marucci leading a new whole column of the Red Brigades in Rome, it, it sort of fostered a different kind of culture for the organization. And so they're kind of trying to assert themselves in new ways. And, you know, Marucci's a lot more flashy than the guys who got locked up, than like Fr Franceschini and uh, Renato Curicio. So um, Marucci is prone towards these kind of big flamboyant actions, these big kind of uh, impassioned communiques and, and making big statements with the actions. And he's also based out of Rome uh, because he was, he had been, a leading member of the Potere Operaio, uh, basically like security force. And so I think that a lot of those changes influenced the direction of the Brigate Rosse and kind of informed the rationale for linking up with the NAP. Mm -hmm. Got it. Yeah, and also, uh, you know, the fact that maybe Franceschini and uh, Curcio had been arrested and were now in jail, you know, that might have influenced the Brigate Rosse's position on the prisons. Even though Curcio had always been kind of uh, supportive of this move, you know, even back when it was the prison commission. So, behind bars, Knapp attempted another jailbreak. This time was in Napoli's Poggio Reale. When a guard thwarted the escape attempt, the NAP members, who assembled into the Nucleo Armato Anna Maria Montini, took control of a section of the jail and took the guard on duty hostage. Incredibly, 
the group was effectively the core of the nap behind bars, including Ana Maria's widowed husband, Nicola Pelecchia, the two De Laurentiis brothers, Giuseppe Sofia, De Quartes, and Buono Conto. So, for whatever reason, the authorities had thrown, like, all of the core members of NAP into the same prison and, like, you know, just said, uh, you know, you're good. Hmm, what could go wrong? (laughs) (laughs) I just... just, Oh, yeah. I just don't know what, what they're doing. Anyway, the attempt failed and the group gained a certain prestige inside, which allegedly transferred it to a mutual respect society with the Camorra, one of the most storied and deadly mafias in Italy based in Naples, right? So so they're trying to make it on the inside and they're inspiring these gangsters. In May 1976, NAP members carry out another ruthless action, driving their motorcycle up alongside Deputy Prosecutor Paulino Delano and shooting him through the window. This was again part of their revenge for Ana Maria because they thought he was suppressing evidence in the case. They didn't really injure him, like, terribly, but it came at the period during which the Knapp members were all being tried for very serious crimes. It can't have positively influenced their comrades' convictions and long sentences. But, incredibly, in September 1976, Giuseppe Sofia and Martino Zikitella both escaped from a maximum security prison in Lecce. Two months later, Zikitella, on the loose, would lead an ambush against Alfonso Noce, the head of the counterterrorism forces. However, the attack was spoiled by a police officer named Prisco Palumo, who was killed in the ensuing gunfight. But Zikitella also died in the firefight, apparently hit by his own comrade, Antonio Lomusio. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, pretty tragic. Um, so Zikitella's dead. That brings the body count up to six. And much of the rest of the group is convicted and sentenced to long terms. And Knapp had basically burned out. But there's one more sputtering chance for a glorious end. On December 13th, Franca Salerna and one of the group's early co-founders, Maria Pia Vianale, escaped from Puzzuoli prison and they disappear into the night. Vianale is pretty famous at this point, though, and a police officer named Claudio Graziosi spots her riding the number 27 bus in Rome, near Trastevere Station, on March 22nd, 1977. Graziosi tells the driver to stop the bus, and he starts to try to arrest Vianale, when another militant, whom he hasn't recognized, shoots him and kills him. As the chase continues with other police, a local officer in plainclothes joins the pursuit but is mistaken for a NAP member, and he gets shot by the other officers. Vianale got away but was spotted by a carabinieri officer with Salerna and Lomuccio on the steps of a church. He asks them for their identification, and Lomuccio tried to run, but the officer cut him down in a hail of bullets from his machine gun. Vianale and Salerno were detained and beaten over the next several minutes. 
by the Carabinieri officer and other police patrols that descended on the scene. At one point, one of them screamed out, Uchi di amole, or let's kill them. <laughs> yeah, not, not a great, uh, not, not great going, guys. Um, the two are ultimately put in jail and sentenced to another long term behind bars. And the Nap responds with an impassioned plea. Because they lost their friend, their comrade, Silvio Lomuccio, who had been radicalized inside a prison and then had accidentally killed Zikitella and then gets mowed down by the Carabinieri after trying to run away from the steps of a church. So Nap says, quote, We remember comrade Silvio, political and military leader of the Nap, whose militancy as a communist fighter contributed to the birth and development of our organization of direct attack on the state. We want to remind the pigs, servants of trigger-happy capital, that the proletariat has infinite patience, but also a long memory, and that nothing will go unpunished. They will personally pay for retaliatory actions against the detained comrades. Honor to our comrade, Lomuccio. Silvio, your attack has not been in vain since a thousand hands have gripped your rifle. Bringing the attack to the heart of the state, create the armed party among the people, always forward until victory. So the Nap appear one more time behind bars three years later, in 1980. The Nap member and prisoner in the Supermax, Emanuele Attimonelli, stabbed to death a 41-year-old inmate named Ugo Benazzi in the Cuneo prison. Attimonelli apparently believed that Benazzi was an informant for the Carabinierian magistrates. The Knapp's final and violent act appeared to indicate that by the end of the years of lead, this group that had, over the period of 10 years, grown from the idealistic practices of feeding neighborhood youth and keeping them off the streets into little more than a hardcore prison gang, shanking prison snitches in high-security correctional facilities. But, you know, to be fair, to be fair, um, there was more to nap than that. And as it grew in prison, more efforts would be launched with the Red Brigades to try and mount a renewed attack. But perhaps more on that, you know, another time. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, like, it does sound like even if you kind of within that arc, I think there's no doubt that, um, yeah, like activating prison populations and rejecting like state enforced ideas of criminality and um, you know, taking praxis seriously. Like these are all things that should not be scoffed away, um, even if there was some kind of unwise uh, decisions and uh, I don't know, Ill like reckless insurrectionary overtures. But like, yeah, I, I, I like the sound of these guys mainly, I will say. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that um, in the United States, Today, we like for a lot of good reasons, um, sort of as a society collectively, uh, and it's true in England too, um, sort of reject the idea of the armed struggle and particularly like some kind of insurrectionary te terrorist violence and, and so forth. Um, 
But it's important also to, you know, place the nap in context. And for a lot of, you know, especially the Italian youth at the time, they weren't just heroes like the killing of Lomuccio, right? Um, as he's trying to flee, you know, it's pretty clear that police might have been able to arrest him without murdering him, without shooting him in the back with machine guns. And they didn't. And so this became like a pretty big moment for a lot of the Italian youth uh, directed towards the political left at the time. You know, uh, Noberto Bobbio spoke out against it. You know, very famous constitutional scholar. Luigi Manconi writes about it, a, a future important politician in Italy as, as a real, you know, turning point in his own youth. There was a general belief that, you know, the NAP might have been wrong about a lot of their methods and um, what they were doing in some ways, but also the fact of Anna Maria's killing and the fact of Lomuccio's killing really showed that, you know, this movement that was trying to get police reform and jail reform was had a purpose, you know, had a real uh, point of view that shouldn't just be completely ignored in a kind of gloss, you know, of law enforcement. Um, Italy's only, what, 30 years removed from the fascist dictatorship? So there's a lot of hard memories of those times. There's a lot of those same laws on the books. And the authorities were trying to reform the prison system based on the activities of groups like NAP and uh, especially the people revolting within the prisons. And it was generally agreed that the, that the institutions were corrupt and the system was outdated and things something had to give. And NAP was saying, look, we need to do it right now. You know, like people are in prison, like actively dying because the system is bad. And so, you know, just kind of trying to push a bill through a parliamentary system that is continuously collapsing is not really helping people in the moment. And so you see people like Nicola Pelecchia or uh, Pia Viannale who are committed from the early days. And, you know, when they're starting out, in the Mensa and they're starting out in the prison commission, they want to make a difference, but the burden is so heavy. And, you know, they're writing to prisoners and they're organizing within the prisons and they're realizing these demands can't be met through the processes of a mass movement, even when that mass movement is really, really revolutionary and radical. So I think we just need to understand the nap and like what, they were up to and why um because it's too easy to kind of like throw all of these people down the drain as just you know a complete delinquent class of you know menaces who had no critique and no analysis and and were not informed by any reasonable or logical behaviors i mean they kind of were it's just that if you don't avoid those problems, they lead you to really, really dark places unless you're patient enough to try and like work through the system, even with all of the problems constantly pressing on you, right? So I don't know. Yeah, I mean, they're very charismatic figures as well. 
And the big thing about Nap is that while they were pretty brutal and merciless, they shot a lot of people in the legs. Um, it doesn't seem like they really were out to kill people. And the places that they attacked were pretty um, specifically, you know, uh, industrialists, the bourgeoisie, uh, or, you know, like a cement CEO or owner of the company, and then, you know, MSE offices, so the fascists, and then also, you know, arms of law and order. And I think that that's where, where they're, like, attacking magistrates. They do set a pretty precarious precedent for other armed groups going forward, particularly Prima Linea, who we'll get into. Um, but, yeah, they weren't, like, we'll see later on in the 80s, in the 70s, you know, these kind of left-wing groups like Brigate Rose, they get really wild and stop caring about civilians entirely. But compared to, like, the far-right groups that were around when NAP was really in its fullest sort of fervor, you know, NAP wasn't killing civilians. And those those extra-parliamentary right-wing groups were just butchering civilians and... um so yeah, so that's often something that's that's mentioned. But on the other hand, <laughs> and I know I'm going off a little bit of a tangent, but uh, one people one thing people say is that the NAP doing all of this sort of numbed Italian society and especially the Italian youth to political violence, such that people just treated it very flippantly, like it was a joke. And that led to escalatory processes that got really way out of hand, even for the groups that were trying to participate in the most radical activities. And so this is really where where NAP becomes so so pivotal, because they really represent kind of three transformations that really define the years of lead. They begin out of the prison commission in Loto Continua, a mass organization dedicated to cultivating the conditions for a mass insurgency or insurrection against capital. In this, Knapp marked a particularly unique development that could only have happened in Napoli, in Naples, joining criminals from peasant backgrounds like Sergio Romeo, who otherwise might have been a, like a storied bandit in the 19th century, with a group of students who had been active in the left-wing protest movements during the late 60s. And we'll see this formula mature and grow ever more volatile as the students of the new left reach their early 20s by the mid-1970s, and they become increasingly involved in high-risk activities. And this leads to the second phase, a lethal combination of risk and hot-headedness. NAP members go from street fights against fascists to raiding fascist offices, graduating to kidnapping rich people and their children, and setting off bombs in less than a year. Like the Red Brigades, this progression can be seen in a kind of increasing confidence that leads their organization to expand its territory and take on more dangerous activities, like the NAP action where they took hostages simultaneously inside and outside of the prison. But through explosives and armed robberies, their own numbers were devastated. It's unclear how many people were involved in the group in three years of existence. Let's just say like several dozen. And with seven fatalities, two in accidental explosions, one in friendly fire, 
and four at the hands of the police, they probably experienced the heaviest losses as a percentage of their overall group. Knapp's final phase, initiated in 1976 after the major arrests and convictions, appears to have been one of dissolution within the prisons. Their positive thing was that they had succeeded in gaining valuable prison reform in 1975, but their persistence after that fact might have brought their radicalism behind bars together with elements of the Camorra, We'll see in future episodes how this phase, from 1977 to 1982, becomes the most brutal phase of the years of lead, as armed mafiosi join with both left and right militants to perpetrate robberies and murders, with attacks lacking any restraint or even logic other than the felt insult or the retaliatory act. The Knapp was a pretty small group in the years of lead, and one of the deadliest, but it opens wide a window into the progression of those difficult days and the violence that wove its way into Italian society and created an atmosphere of tension that came to characterize what experts have since described as the country's creeping civil war. Yeah, so it's like, yeah, it's an interesting kind of um, presaging of that, that you know, it's like a, just gets just gets more extreme. Whereas you kind of think of um, the way in which there's a certain nostalgic adulation and you know some decent amount of like accorded, a rightfully accorded respect, but obviously critical engagement with, say, in like Germany, the history of the RF and their um, you know uh, militant uh, and like armed and explosive based tactics. Um, but it's not like the, uh, you know, Red Army faction grew into, like, found itself then in an era of, like, mass civil war in Germany. It was like, that is considered, like, a, a high point of left militancy in the last, you know, 50 years. Um, and is kind of uh, crystallized as such, as opposed to being like, oh, and then you never guess what happened in the, like, late 70s. <laughs> Yeah, like, like, yeah, so, so I think that, yeah, there's a lot to a comparison between the Red Army faction in Germany and the NAP in Italy, right? What, something similar kind of happens where with the Red Army faction, you have a lot of their members being sent to prison. And then you have a lot of people speculating that, you know, Bader and uh, Ulrika Meinhof are like behind bars, like secretly coordinating the actions that are taking place on the outside in their name. And at one point, Meinhof even has to sort of release a statement uh, saying, you know, stop doing actions in our name because she and and the sort of core of the organization believed that their uh, actions happening outside were no longer following the appropriate Marxist-Leninist program. And it, it, it's kind of it like Knapp never had that to the same extent, partly because they were a more horizontally organized group of, you know, people who were family members, you know, brothers, sisters, people who were married. So they were like organized through these safe houses, through these love bonds and, through this sympathy and commitment to a cause 
and no real framework for how that cause was going to be carried out beyond just sort of like arming up and fighting the bad guys. Um, and obviously, like, that wasn't enough. But in a sense, it's like symptomatic of the broader civil violence that was taking place in Italy uh, in comparison to Germany, say. Which is why I kind of think that maybe the NAP has, like, maybe a little bit more in common with some of the more chaotic formations that were around during the Troubles in Ireland. Um, because the general civil conflict was so much, you know, more uh, dis diffuse. And, and yeah, and you can see the way, like, different kind of offshore groups and kind of like the real IRA have obviously, like, deep, deep divisions with how kind of the original IRA would frame themselves. And yeah, and when something is spread out over 30 years of intensity, the kind of difference those valences and iterations can take. Right. Yeah. And when you think about Ireland in the 70s, and I, I should say I'm not like an expert at all on the troubles uh, very much. You can tell where the horrible country I come from. <laughs> how much we learn about the troubles but um yeah sorry continue <laughs> yeah i i don't know that much about it either but like when you think about the forces uh in ireland who are fighting in in northern ireland um on the side of uh the republicans you have the the provost right they did a lot of the activity in the 1970s the provisional ira and the official ira which was i think somewhat less violent but then um, beyond that, you also have the the INLA, uh, right? The um, Irish National Liberation Army, I think was like uh, Seamus Costello's thing. And I mean, maybe that would be more comparable because like beyond that, I don't know, like maybe Desi O'Hare or something like the sort of paramilitaries who just kind of took up arms and became like vigilante legends or myths or whatever. I don't know. It's hard to think because the NAP kind of came out of a social movement and became this other thing. Yeah, no, it's it's sort of like they're the they're the excess, right? Like they're like, which is often how people talk about prison populations anyway. So that kind of is an interesting intersection. But yeah there's a kind of rupturous excess as opposed to a kind of set of social forces coalescing. It's like there are social movements, there are radical social movements, and then they find their exit. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad that, you know, I had you on to talk about this because you are kind of geared toward understanding the context through which things like this occur. You know, and, you know, I tried to kind of focus this episode around the social forces, right? They're from Naples. It's poor. It's crime ridden. You know, it's a place with very little opportunity. Uh, there's a lot of oppressive sort of reactionary Catholicism and, and monarchism there. And they're just trying to fight so much at the same time. And it's so easy to say, just condemn them. They're bad guys. 
look what happened to them, how depressing, it didn't work and so on. But there's so much more. Yeah, no, and it's like to be like the force that's like the force of like the most dejected, not the kind of kind of somewhat privileged, but rightfully angry, right? The dejected and angry. And then to be able to find like organization as such, even if it's a kind of messy and highly erratic organization, um, working within the kind of impossible constraints of being both inside and outside of prison. Like, I don't know, I think it's impressive. Like, I, I, like, I don't just, I don't see kind of idiocy in that, even if there's excess to the excess. Yeah, I mean, you gotta look, I mean, it's pretty, you have to marvel at some of the activities that they, they carried forth. Uh, I mean, like, conducting a dual hostage situation inside prison and outside prison and presenting demands through the national media i mean i don't care who you are like that's a pretty that's a pretty complicated high level uh act action and and another thing about them is that you know all the police repression all the kind of the 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 murder of Ana maria montini and the uh, various tortures. I mean, the Knapp's persistence, the very fact that they were able to keep going sort of showed how little those counter-terrorism uh, uh, attempts really worked. Right, because it would just, because of like, just kind of creating a more resilient and angrier force. And, you know, as you know, the kind of idea of context um, that when you've got, yeah, like, active armed fascists on mass the idea of explosives and taking up arms and hostages is not it's not completely like outre <laughs> like... yeah i agree even though i don't know what outre means but i agree with that um and and when you look at the statistics of that period it's like more than 80 percent of the violent acts prior to 1975 had been carried out by the far right not the left. Mm -hmm. I mean, so often the case. And yeah, and so maybe kind of, which is not to say that like NAP actions weren't violent, but is it kind of worth thinking them within a framework of kind of counter violence, right? Even if it wasn't an immediate like response to a blow in an exact event, it's kind of within a context, it could be understood as counter violent action. It, I think so. Uh, yeah. The thing is, it's it's like their minds and and so many people on the left they're just their minds had been completely broken by the relentless onslaughts and the strategy behind them um behind the massacres which was kind of plain as day for everybody to see by 1974. It kind of starts with this huge massacre at Piazza Fontana in 1969, and the trial just goes on and on and on. And at first they're blaming the left. You know, they're blaming the left for these awful massacres when it's quite clear that uh, it's a fascist movement that's doing it and, like, coordinating within the state in order to blame the left, you know? Uh, so, you know, you have those trials that are going on and on. And then in 1973, Nico Atsi tries to do the same thing in a train and accidentally blows himself up. But they admit that they were going to try to put the blame on the gap at that point. 
And then, you know, you're going forward into 1974 and you got two more coups that have been exposed. And throughout this whole period, you know, nobody's seeing any justice at all. There's there's complete impunity. And so so many people who are struggling and becoming the the. You know, the uh, target of attacks um, and, you know, doing their fair amount of, of of violence against the fascists. You know, at this point, it becomes escalatory and they just want I think they just want to fight back. They just want to reclaim some dignity to a degree. Yeah. And if you've been, you know, if you if you come from a place where for other reasons of like extreme poverty and the presumption of a kind of trajectory or like a teleos of delinquency, the idea of like responding with by any means necessary is yeah it's uh it's totally understandable i think even if kind of hardest the hardest lessons were learned right and learned they were yeah mm. that's a sad story interesting <laughs> well thank you for thank you for this very interesting history exploration yay <laughs> Thank you very much for participating and uh, for all of your uh, elucidating comments. Uh, very, very good to chat with you and learning more about the Angsty Parliamentary Lift. Absolutely. Yeah, this was fun. Um, and I'm excited to listen to uh, the rest of the Years of Lead um, explorations. Um, but yeah. Most definitely. Most definitely. All right. So Natasha Leonard of The Intercept with some wonderful stuff. Um, Being Numerous is her book. Yes, so my essay collection with Verso Books, Being Numerous, Essays on Non-Fascist Life, uh, came out in a paperback edition uh, last year. So it's a post-2020 post in the sense that, you know, things don't end just because they're post, <laughs> post like post-structuralism, um, yeah. post-2020 edition. Um, so yeah, you guys could Google that if you want. Yeah, awesome. I actually, I found the Italian version and it's very good. It's very well translated. Uh, and I, I really, I got a lot out of it. It felt awesome. I felt like I was back in Europe amidst the cafes and outdoor restaurants. Anyway, um, yeah. And thank you to all the audience who joined us for this concluding episode of the Nuclei Armati Proletari uh three-parter free them all liberare tutti um if you liked what we do here give us a five-star rating on the uh app of your choice and subscribe to the patreon because we've got lots of cool stuff there some bonus episodes some stuff you might not have heard of before and um would find interesting in the larger kind of scheme of things so thank you very much to natasha leonard and everybody have a good, um, I don't know, take what, uh, yeah, um, uh, see ya!